Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 18 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's uh, one in front of you. You can look on page 984, and we've also printed it in your worship guide uh, this morning. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, reading through verse 21. Hear God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time as we approach God's Word? Heavenly Father, Forgive the one who stands here to preach your word this morning, for his sins are many. May we see and hear the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone through your word. Holy Spirit, come now and tend to your word. That we might behold wondrous things, the mysteries of truth that you have revealed to us, so that we might be changed by it. We ask that you would do this now, for your glory and our good. Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we have been studying the book of Colossians. And what has been evident through our study out throughout the book of Colossians is that this book uh, is centered upon Christ and his sufficiency. We've been saying that Christ is enough. And the Apostle Paul here in chapter 3 speaks to the believers new life in Christ. And up to this point in chapter 3, Paul's been contrasting the old life, the old self that was rooted in things of the flesh like covetousness, evil desires, uh, sexual morality. And then over against that, he contrasts that with the new self that produces the fruit of kindness and love and forgiveness and thankfulness. And so now as we come to this section, verses 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul now turns his focus uh, to practically and specifically speaking about grace-fueled relationships within the family that flow out of our union with Jesus Christ. But let me first remind us as we come into this text about what Paul says in verse 17, which immediately precedes our text. He writes this, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, we can't understand what Paul is going to reveal this morning to us in verses 18 through 21 unless we marry that that to verse 17 that precedes it. And so as we look at the areas of submission, of headship, of obedience and authority, we have to see that all of these things center upon Jesus Christ. For if we don't, then we can remove these things and we will distort them in our lives and we will fail to see how God has graciously designed things to work and operate best within the home as he lays out here in verses 18 through 21. See, by God's design, the home is to be a refuge. It's to be a means of grace for those in the home and in the family. He says there has to be structure, though, to this home. There has to be rules Now, contrary to popular belief in the way that our culture operates, freedom doesn't come in an absence of rules. 
Actually, chaos and selfish ambition will rule and chaos will, will result and tyranny will result. This is why God gives us one head on our bodies and not two heads. This is why if you go down to the GM plant down the road, they're not putting two steering wheels in the cars that they're assembling. He's designed it a certain way. And the result would be disastrous if we were to try to manufacture a different design than he's given to us. And so therefore, God gives good structure and order within the marriage relationship and within the parent-child relationship so that it doesn't descend into chaos and disaster. And so this morning, we're going to consider how God calls us to glorify Him uh, in the way that we live out our marriage relationship and the child and parent uh, relationship. And Paul begins with marriage, with wives. He says this in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, just mentioning that word, submission, and submit conjures up all kinds of ideas in each one of our minds that vary among us here and because of cultural connotations, right? That word to submit in the context of marriage in our culture is a word that sounds dated, it sounds suppressive, and sounds downright offensive to many. And so if we're going to understand rightly God's design for marriage We have to rightly understand the context in which Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands. Now, the definition of submit means to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another one. And so right from the beginning, we need to say from the outset and understand that this idea of yielding to a superior authority is not relegated just to wives. For we are all human beings commanded to submit not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, and God our Creator, but we're to submit to one another. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so there's not one of us here who is not called to submit to another. Furthermore, the Scriptures tell us that every human being is created in the image of God and experiences the graciousness of God. And so in the eyes of God, there is no distinction of worth between male or female. Paul says in Galatians 3, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what we see is that men and women are equal in value and equal in dignity. And so for us to understand what submission means for a wife in the context of of marriage, first, let's understand what submission does not mean. Submission doesn't mean that a wife gives up her independent desire and thoughts and opinions in the marriage. Nor does submission mean that a wife gives in to every demand of her husband. Nor does it mean that a wife is of lesser intelligence than her husband, which I blow that theory out of the water very quickly with my own marriage. Nor does it mean that the wife should be timid and fearful of her husband. Submission in the marriage does not mean that the wife is to passively obey her husband at every turn. This verse is not a call for a wife to be a doormat. Far from that. So to rightly understand a wife's submission to her husband, we have to look to Christ's relationship with the Father. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. 
And the head of his wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Wives, your submission to your husband is grounded in Christ's submission to his father. Christ left the throne of heaven, came down to this earth, and submitted to the will of his heavenly father. He says this in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, in Christ's act of submitting to the Father, it doesn't show or mean that the Father's better than the Son. They are both God, equal in power, equal in glory. But yet Christ willingly submitted, and he took on the role of submissive Son for redemption. And so what Christ does is he actually glorifies submission as he secures our salvation in Christ and himself. So wives, though you are equal to your husband, you are called to willingly respect and to submit to God's design for your husband to be your loving leader in the marriage. Now as a wife, you partake of all the beauty of what God lays out here in these verses here in Colossians 3. And the means of grace, the fellowship of all the saints as equals. But God has set up certain authorities for particular relationships and issues. And so in the marriage relationship, there are certain issues and circumstances that require authority. And in those situations and circumstances, wives, you're to submit to the headship of your husband. All right, so how do we discern what these issues and circumstances are that warrant authority? Well, it means we must be dependent upon the Scriptures. We must be seeking God in His Word, and we must use godly wisdom in order to understand those situations that warrant submission. And when there is a disagreement, and there's a difference of opinions between the husband and a wife, men bear the accountability and the responsibility for the final decision. And so wives, you're called to submit to this weighty role that God has given your husband as the head of your home. The specifics, though, of how this plays out in every home is going to look a little different. And so I'm not going to lay out hypotheticals because it's going to look different in different homes. However, submission of the wife to her husband in marriage should always look like respect. It should never be one who gossips about her husband to her friends, to her mother, Nor should she be manipulative or depriving him of physical intimacy and connection with her. Nor should she respond from a posture of dominance or trying to usurp her husband's headship. And Paul says this submission should be done as is fitting in the Lord, he says. Now this kind of submission doesn't happen in a wife mustering this up and trying to do this in her own effort. This happens as a result of the Holy Spirit at work. It's a submission that flows from this new self, from this union with Christ that she has. So wives, as you rest in Christ and you seek Him in, your, in His Word, and the Holy Spirit will promise to provide you with wisdom and discernment of when and how to submit to your husband so that it honors Him and honors the Lord Jesus. Next, Paul turns to the husbands. Verse 19, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Again, the reference point is the same for the husband as it was for the wife. It is grounded in Christ. Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This call for husbands to lead their wives is not out of superiority or out of dominance, but rather it's out of humility. The call for the husbands to lead their wives is in a way so that the submission of the wife is safeguarded by the husband's love for her. Just as Christ modeled sacrificial service and laying down his life for his bride, the the church, so husbands, we are called to humble ourselves, to sacrificially love our wives and lay down our lives for them. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lays out this standard of what love looks like. Many of us have heard this when we've been to weddings. Very famous passage. There Paul writes, Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, husbands, it could be easy to look at this standard that Paul lays out here and turn it into a checklist and think, okay, let me see how I can do with this as I engage with my wife. But that's not what it's meant for because we will fail miserably at it as we have all experienced as husbands. No, this is the kind of love that is ultimately fruit that is born from our connection and union with Christ. Because God is love, and we are in Him, we not only have the capacity, but we have the ability by His Spirit's power to love our wives in a sacrificial way like Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 13. But Paul contrasts this call for husbands to love their wives with this command not to be harsh or to be embittered towards our wives. And again, harsh is defined as being unpleasantly rough, cruel, severe. So the question becomes, what does it look like, husbands, for us to love our wives in a way that is not harsh or severe? Well, husbands, this requires that we become a student of our wives. Whether you are in your first year of marriage or in your 60th year of marriage, that we constantly pursue getting to know our wives in a deeper level and intimacy with them. It means we learn what our wives' weaknesses are, what her vulnerabilities are, what her fears are, what are her strengths, her giftedness. And as we learn these things, we love her with the love of Christ sacrificially because of who God has created her to be, not who we want her to be. And if we're united to Christ, this also means that we are called to wash our wives in the word, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And so in order for us to do this, we have to engage our, heart, our wives' hearts. We have to converse with them and prioritize, asking them what they're learning in the scriptures. Asking how God is stretching them and challenging them and bringing about conviction of sin. Asking them how we can pray for them and with them. Just as submission for the wife is going to look differently in the home, so too will husbands as we love our wives and engage with them. Is your wife 
gifted with the finances and enjoys doing those? Does your wife suffer with a chronic disease? Does your wife homeschool the children? Does your wife can't stand to cook or clean the house? Does she enjoy the yard work? Does she like mowing, planting flowers, gardening? Consider the way that God has uniquely, individually created your wife and ask the Spirit to help you apply these things, this self-sacrificial love that God is calling us to display as husbands in our wives' lives. And so extend forgiveness where we have harbored anger or resentment towards our wives. It means coming along and bearing some of the weight that your wives are walking through and things that they're struggling with. It means letting go of that list of wrongs that we have had running in our heads that's caused us to resent them because they're not living up and doing what we think that they should be. It's letting go of that. It's showing kindness and coming alongside and helping where she needs help. See, in the marriage relationship, the biggest obstacle that stands in the way of a thriving and flourishing marriage that is honoring to Christ is the sin of our own selfishness. Our enemy knows this very keenly, and so he tries to do everything he can to convince us that our spouse is against us, and they're the reason why we're not experiencing fulfillment and happiness. They're the problem. If they would just get things figured out, our marriage would be great. But we're not enemies of one another. We are on this journey with the same common goal to glorify the Father in our marriage as we pursue Him. Our enemy is that sin or that temptation that we allow creep into our marriages, not one another. In college, Jessica and I, uh, when we were dating, we learned how to swing dance. That was back when it was becoming popular again. And maybe you and your wife have taken dance lessons. But you know that in any couple's dance, that it is vital that you have a good male leader who leads the dance. The dance kind of makes or breaks based on on how the male leads the dance. But it also requires a girl who's actively following her partner in order for it to be beautiful and to be as designed. Otherwise, you're just going to be stepping on one another's toes, literally. This is no different in the dance of marriage. The dance of marriage requires active and sacrificial leadership of the husband and the willing submission and respect of the wife to her husband, as well as continual forgiveness and repentance to one another when you fail one another. And as you submit to Christ in the power of the Spirit. But when both husband and wife are living out of their union with Christ, and they're following God's design for marriage, what it produces is something beautiful and glorious to the Father and those outside watching in. And it reflects the choreographer's design and the way that he's designed marriage. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, we're called to love our wives and not be harsh. Okay, children... Teenagers, I want to turn my attention to speak to you for a moment. I know often we don't have sermons that are geared specifically towards children, so stop scribbling for a minute and look up and, and wake up. 
Paul has something to say to you. In verse 20, he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, I know that's not exactly what you were hoping Paul was going to say to you. You're probably hoping that he would say, Obey your parents when it's fun and when you enjoy it. But whether you realize it or not, children, teenagers, the most important thing and best thing you can do is obey your parents. Okay, I know you're not convinced, so I'm going to convince you and try to. The reason why is not because your parents are always right. It's not even because your parents are really that awesome, to be honest. The reason why you're called to obey and submit to your parents is because it pleases the Lord and it honors Him. And so the reason you're called to obey is because it honors Him as you do so and it recognizes that God has placed authority over you that is good. All right, children, teenagers, walk back with me to the beginning of creation. Remember in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? God gave them one rule, only one rule. He said what? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So Adam and Eve, given this one rule, they looked upon the tree, and all they could see was how desirous and pleasant that tree looked. That apple was tasty for eating. So what did they do? They took the apple and they took a bite. They weren't thinking about what lay beyond that rule or beyond that action of eating that apple, did they? See, they were so caught up in the short-sightedness of eating that apple and what good it looked like in their lives that they didn't see the rule that God had given them was actually good for them. And so that rule, they failed to realize, was given from a good father who's providing for them. Well, children and teenagers, obeying your parents is entrusting yourselves to the grand creator. It is recognizing that your parents see beyond the pleasantness of sin, those things that you want to do that maybe you don't realize what lies on the other side of those and the consequences that could come from those actions. Your parents see that, and they have your best interests in mind. So that's why they tell you, no, you can't do that. Or, okay, you can do that. And why they give you rules to follow. God has placed your parents in authority over you, and he's done so for your good. And I know often it doesn't feel like that. It feels like mom and dad are just putting another obstacle in your place to keep you from having your fun and enjoying things you want to do, right? But think about how Jesus felt. Jesus had earthly parents, right? Remember that? He is God in the flesh, and yet he submitted himself to imperfect parents and authorities who were sinful and who were flawed. I mean, think about the times that Jesus could have gone, okay, time out. Mom and dad, here's how you need to parent me. Let me, let me explain this to you. But he didn't do that. He submitted to his earthly parents, as imperfect as they were. What this means, kids, is that Jesus can identify with you fully. He knows what it's like to submit to parents. And so call out to him for strength and power and understanding of how you too can submit yourself to the authority that God has placed in your life. Christ did so perfectly, so you can trust him. And as you submit yourself and obey your parents, as imperfect as they are, not only are you glorifying God, but you're recognizing God's good provision and you're trusting Him in your life.
Romans 1, Paul speaks of how people had fully turned their backs on God as their authority. And he gives this list of the ways that they were acting out. And listen to this list that he says. He says they were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and gossips and slanderers, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish and heartless. Did you hear that? Obedience to parents is in the same list as murderers. So what that says is that God is serious about this as sin. But yet it also tells us that this has been a struggle since the beginning of time for children and teenagers to submit in obedience to their parents. Okay, kids, think about what what makes it so difficult to obey your mom and dad. Now, if we dig down to the root of that, it's because they're asking you to do things you don't want to do. Just like in marriage, it's rooted in the sin of selfishness and pride. Now, if your parents asked you to go eat a pint of ice cream, you wouldn't have any problem doing that, would you? But when they ask you to take out the trash, go clean your room, walk the dog, watch your siblings, that's often going against what you want to do, and you want to buck up against that and put, resist that. Because it's rooted in selfishness. But God is calling you to obey your parents in everything they ask because it is good for you and because it pleases your Heavenly Father. All right, children and teenagers, I want to give you five quick practical things to keep in mind in regards to obeying your parents. First, ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and strength in order to do so. When you try to do this in your own power, you will continue to fail. Because your obedience to your parents must be out of a desire for obedience ultimately to God and out of the security of His love that you know that He has for you as His child. So trust and rely upon His Spirit. Secondly, trust that what He's giving you is good, even in your parents. Believe by faith that God has actually given the parents that you have specifically so that you can grow and mature into the godly man and woman that God is calling you to be. And that they are vital in that process to lead you down that path to maturity and holiness. Third, give your attention to your parents when they speak to you. Stop what you're doing. Give them respect as you look in their eyes and give them your undivided attention. Fourthly, choose to have a good attitude towards your parents and all that they ask. Ask the Spirit to keep you from grumbling and complaining and arguing with your parents and wanting to roll your eyes when they ask you to do something. And then lastly, respond by doing what your parents ask when they ask you to do it. If your parents tell you to go do something now, go do it now. If they tell you to do it later, make sure you do it later. It's a good thing to listen to your parents, and it's a good thing to have a good attitude, but if you don't follow through with what they ask you to do, you're not being obedient. So follow through with what they ask you to do. And in doing all of this, you will not only be obeying the authority that God has placed over you, but you'll be honoring your Savior, and you'll be bringing Him glory through your obedience. All right, lastly... Let's investigate what Paul says to parents, specifically fathers. Paul writes in verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now that word provoke here means to incite your child to feel a sense of anger and respond likewise, and to bring them to discouragement. So Paul's saying, don't use actions and words that are going to bring discouragement upon your children that will cause anger to stir in them. 
So this call is for fathers and mothers, uh, by extension, to live out the gospel before our children. God gives parents authority over their children, but it is a privilege that we are not to use to lord it over them and to abuse and dominate them. See, we can rob our children of their self-esteem and break their spirit and emotionally cripple them through harsh words or demands that we put on them that are unrealistic. And so that's why this command is given, because Paul knows that in our flesh, fathers, that we can respond in ways that can wound our children severely. Parenting fueled by grace is characterized by authority that is both intimate and intentional with our children. When we intentionally engage in the hearts of our children and we shower them with the love of Christ, then they can taste and they can smell the aroma of Christ's love flowing through us to our children. And when we can create an environment that is filled with grace, where we allow them freedom to fail and not bring the hammer down on them, It doesn't mean that we don't instruct them and even have consequences for disobedience, but we do it all laced with grace. Then it motivates them more to obedience because they're seeing the graciousness of their Heavenly Father displayed even through their parents. But in order for this to happen, it means that we have to spend time with our children intentionally and prioritizing that in the busyness of life. And this is true even of our adult children, for those of you whose children have already moved out of the home that we continue to engage with them and come alongside them and be intentional and being in presence, being present with them, whether that's over the phone or even in their presence. Because if we're distant from our children's hearts and we use our authority harshly, it can crush our children. It can lead them to despair and discouragement, as Paul says. And I'm sure there's some represented here, even this morning, that are still reeling from the effects of growing up with a father or a mother who are so demanding and harsh that you're still dealing with that as an adult, never feeling like you lived up to the demands and expectations of dad or of mom. See, demanding perfection accompanied by endless criticism when they don't measure up will continue to cripple them and make them feel that they're not worthy. They're undeserving of any kind of love, much less the father's love. We have to be intentional as parents not to create this environment where we are comparing our kids to other kids or even to their siblings. And that we're not always using a but when they've done something to show that they haven't quite measured up to what we've asked or placing unrealistic demands upon them. Our interactions, our responses to our children must be tender and grace-filled. Our parenting should be saturated with grace because as parents, we have experienced the steadfast love and grace of the Father in our lives upon our myriad of failures that we have had. How can we not extend that? God doesn't heap criticism upon us. He doesn't come back at us with harsh words and sarcastic responses and tries to justify them and saying, oh, it's a long day at work today. I'm tired. I'm just in a bad mood. No, he moves towards us with compassion and mercy and love and speaks over us words of encouragement. He never looks down upon us. He draws near to his children. So what this means is when our children do fail and they do sin, that they desperately need to hear and see tangibly 
that our love does not waver from them because of what they did or what they didn't do. That we love them because they're a gift to us from God. And they're our son or our daughter. And so that's why we love them. They need to know and be assured that there's nothing that they could do to lose our love. Fathers, we especially have tremendous impact in helping to shape how our children view our Heavenly Father. Whether we like it or not, our children are making judgments about God based on how we interact and how we respond to them. And that is a weighty call. But it is a privilege that we get to speak in and come alongside and help our children see who God is and what He's like and how He desires to engage in their lives. May our children know authority that is marked by truth and grace and that is rooted firmly in the gospel of Christ. And may they know when they fail that the grace of the gospel is so sufficient to cover every one of their sins that they can run lovingly back into the arms of their Heavenly Father who forgives them and into the arms of their earthly mother and father who too will forgive them. You know, this week in doing study for this uh, passage, obviously uh, it has stirred a lot of understanding in my own heart and the multiple ways that I have failed as a husband and as a father. And so as we hear these words from Paul related to submission in our marriage, to headship for husbands, for obedience as children and authority as parents, it's a hard thing to hear because it stirs up a lot of guilt and shame in our hearts. But Paul and God has given us this for our good and for the good of those in our home so that it might bring glory to our Father. But the reality is, is every one of us is a failure in living up to this calling that we have as a husband, as a wife, as a child, and as a parent. But you need to hear this morning, husbands and wives, that your marriage is not hopeless. It's not ruined because you have failed to submit to your husband. Or husbands, you have failed to lead your wives and you've been passive in your relationship with your wife. God can restore what the locusts have eaten, as Song of Solomon tells us. And parents, you need to know that your past failures and sin has not ruined your child. Though you've been given authority, you don't have that much power. Christ can redeem and restore that. And children, it is never too late to repent and ask forgiveness of your parents where you have failed to respect them and failed to be obedient to them. And trust God to restore that relationship with mom and dad greater than it ever was before to greater intimacy with them. There is more than enough grace to go around and cover all of our sins. And all these family relationships that Paul has given to us this morning, there is nothing here that Christ is asking us to do that he himself has not first done. Nor is he asking us to do something that he is not empowering us by the power of his spirit to carry out, though imperfectly now, but he gives us his power to do so. And so the way that we grow and mature as husbands and wives and children and parents is by beholding the glory of Christ and resting in our unity and union with Him. We become what we behold. And so as we pursue Christ and His Spirit opens our eyes to see the multifaceted glory of Christ, 
then we become more and more like Him. This is the key to overcoming the impossibility of this calling in our marriage, in our parenting, or as children. So may we seek the Lord by resting and relying upon His grace throughout our family relationships so that He is honored and ultimately His fame extends to the utter ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear these words, we are quickly confronted with how far short we measure up to what you are calling us to, to a love that is patient and kind, that does not envy or boast or is rude or arrogant. But Lord, we thank you that you have come, that you have covered the multitude of our sins, and that we now can love like the Father and the Son because your Spirit indwells our hearts. So Lord, would you help us in our marriages? Would you give us hope? Would you give us endurance? And would you give us your Spirit's power that we as wives might submit to our husbands and as husbands we might sacrificially love our wives and children we might obey our parents out of love for the Lord and mothers and fathers that we might too parent in the way that our Heavenly Father has parented us. Lord, if you would do this, we would show forth relationships that would give you the glory and that would extend your honor So we ask that you would do this for our good so that we might experience flourishing relationships removed from discord and conflict that we want to stay in because it's hard. Would you allow us to push through that so that we might taste and experience the blessings of reconciliation and the flourishing relationships that come when we rest in our union with Christ. We pray all this to the ends of your glory. Amen.